We had last year around 12,500 protests worldwide related to price increases in food and fuel. These global shocks that we're talking about, which is, you know, the three C's, COVID, climate and conflict of the past years have basically led governments now to rethink their resilience when it comes to food. The AIG Global Trade Series 2023 is a series of podcasts brought to you by AIG in partnership with some of the world's leading centers of expertise on global trade. Visit www.aig.com forward slash GTS. The series moderator is Rem Kortovec of the Klingendahl Institute. Hello and welcome to this episode of the AIG Global Trade Series 2023. This is your host, Rem Korteweg from the Klingendal Institute in the Netherlands, and today's topic is food security and global trade. Now, we all know about the food crisis sparked by the war in Ukraine last year, export restrictions on Ukrainian grain, but also on Russian fertilizer sent food prices through the roof putting inflation on an upward trend and leading to shortages in countries reliant on imports from the Black Sea region. Now, this is not just a problem in terms of this putting pressure on governments where that are already very reliant on food imports. It also brought home the fact that food security is very much connected to free-flowing trade in agricultural goods. Now, the IMF has written recently that And I quote, food insecurity has been rising since 2018. And even before Russia's invasion of Ukraine, the increasing frequency and severity of climate shocks, regional conflicts, and the pandemic were all taking their toll, disrupting food production and distribution, and driving up the cost of feeding people and families, end of quote. Now, this particularly affects developing economies, which are generally more dependent on food imports. But they are also more exposed to climate stress. And these are economies where people also spend a large portion of their disposable income on food. But even in the developed world, there are concerns about food security, but in a different way. There are sustainability concerns about food production methods and farming, which is leading to new trade measures being put in place. Or we see in these economies agricultural protectionism rear its head in order to support local farmers. And the argument that's increasingly being used is one of food security. So what are the most important dynamics shaping the global trade in agricultural goods? And how is this, or isn't it, leading to greater food security? And how can we address the frictions, the restrictions, and imbalances in the trade in agricultural goods? And to explore this, I'm joined by two terrific experts in the field. Firstly, from Paris, I'm very pleased to welcome back Marianne Jansen. Marianne is the director of the Trade and Agricultural Directorate at the OECD, where she oversees the implementation of the OECD's work on international trade, agricultural and fisheries, and its contributions to fora like the G20, G7, and APEC. Many of you will also know Marianne from her previous role as Chief Economist and Director for the Division of Market Development at the International Trade Center in Geneva. She also has a professional background at the WTO, and from 2009 to 2012, she was the head of the Trade and Employment Program at the International Labor Organization. So, Marion, it's great to welcome you back to the podcast. 
And from Brussels, I'm joined by Emily Rees. Emily is the CEO of CropLife, which represents the plant science industry, which she joined earlier this year. She's an economist by training and has worked on the intersection of trade, climate, and agriculture. Emily used to serve as France's trade attaché to Brazil and has led Brazil's trade and investment agency's relations with the EU. She also used to be a senior fellow at the European Center for International Political Economy in Brussels. Again, a very warm welcome to you both. So let's let's get started. And perhaps to start with you, Marion, what, from your vantage point, are the main areas of concern and the key commodities involved when it comes to this question of how global trade impacts food security? Thank you, Ram, for that question, and thank you for having um, me here. For the OECD, the theme of food security is an important topic, and it is uh, currently high on the global agenda. Um, at the G20 level this year, under the Indian presidency, food security was a top issue for the agriculture ministerial discussions. At the OECD, we organized a agricultural ministerial meeting last year in November, and also their food security top of the agenda. But um, when we think food security, we think of, is there enough food? Is there enough food being produced? And then is that food accessible to consumers? Is it reaching the places where we need to have access to that food? So that's an important aspect, but something we cannot forget in the current situation is that sustainability, environmental sustainability, and in particular in the context of climate change, is an additional important challenge. So when we are looking at what can we do about food security and about feeding the world, we are also looking in parallel at how can this be done in a sustainable way and what is the role for trade in this. It's very much about sustainable agri-food trade for food security. Now, the first challenge uh, when it comes to ensuring that there's enough food is the one to produce enough. And if we have to do this in a sustainable way, it's producing more because there's a growing world population using less or at maximum the same in terms of resources. We see that we have estimated that there is unfortunately a huge productivity gap here. We would need to increase productivity by 28% over the coming 10 years in order to have enough food and produce it sustainably. And that's an awful lot of productivity increase that we would require. In the current context, it's very difficult to generate this. Why? Because actors are acting in this field of uncertainty. Huge uncertainties, you mentioned them. Actors are exposed to climate shocks, are exposed, uh, have been exposed to financial shocks, to COVID-19, and now to a war because of the Russian aggression against Ukraine, a war in regions of important agricultural production, in particular agricultural exports. Now, when it comes to what is the role of trade and what is needs to be done in order to ensure enough access to food, we are seeing a pattern of there are important countries, regions of the world that depend on access to food through trade because they do not produce enough to feed their populations. And increasingly, we still see certain emerging markets like uh, Latin America being a net exporter and various other regions like Africa are net importers. In an expo in the current in the most recent crisis, we have seen a number of problems occurring. One I think uh, we had underestimated in the past as an issue is the one of logistics. 
when uh, the logistics for trade are interrupted, it's not so easy to regenerate the logistics in order to bring food from the place where it's produced to where it is needed. You mentioned the Black Sea Ram. Black Sea trade was interrupted. Trade on the Black Sea went typically from Ukraine, Russia to the African region. It was necessary to reestablish those logistics or to deviate, for instance, by constructing the solidarity lanes that the European Union then constructed. So that's something we have become more aware of, that we have to pay attention to the logistics. But then there, it's, of course, the prices and the price movements. Whenever there are crises, prices go up. We have argued in the OECD that at the beginning of the Ukraine crisis, we saw significant overshooting of prices and that it was important for policymakers to make the case, provide information about how much food is available, how much food can be traded, and to make sure that markets do not overreact. Because, Rem, I think you're an economist, I'm an economist. Overshooting for me is a chart going up, a line going up and going down doesn't look so terrible if you go back to the equilibrium. For people, what does that mean? If I'm feeding a poor family, it means for a few days or for a few weeks, I pay triple the price than normally. That means I may not be able to feed my children. Overshooting can be very bad. So instability um, in prices, logistics, and then another phenomenon we are seeing whenever there is global instability, actually two phenomena. One, the dollar appreciates. And that's an issue for most of the importing countries because their currency depreciates. Food is traded in dollars. So currently, dollar prices of many food crops are back to pre-war. But in local currencies for many countries, they are still very high. This is of concern to many importing countries. And another thing we see is that countries overreact, not just markets, and countries start to introduce policy restrictions, including export restrictions. We saw very little of that in COVID-19. We saw a bit of that in the aftermath of the Ukraine crisis. And here, international forums like uh, the G20 or collaborations international agencies have, for instance, through something called AMIS, the Agricultural Market Information System, have been important to control those um, reactions. So we have not seen too much of export restrictions going on, but it has been happening and that's very bad for the stability of markets and very bad for access to food. That's a great overview, Mary. And let me, I want to bring in Emily as well, but just very briefly, when you look at sort of the food security question, what are the key commodities that come to mind? Is it the cereals that we've heard so much about in the context of of the Ukraine war, or is it soy? Is it particular oils? Are there any commodities that you can point to that we should really have on our radar when thinking about food security? There's a formal answer, answer to this. When uh, there was an important food crisis and the period of the great financial crisis, you may record this crisis 2008-2009. In the beginning, we called it the triple F crisis, financial, fuel, and food crisis. Food prices went up dramatically at the time. And at that time, the G20, under uh, an initiative of the French government, they asked international agencies to work together and monitor the behavior of markets for what are considered the main staple crops. And those were corn, soy, rice, and wheat. Now, in the current, the most recent debate around the war in Ukraine, wheat has attracted a lot of attention because Ukraine is an important wheat exporter, not the biggest wheat producer, 
countries like China and India are much bigger producers, but an important exporter. And interest, you may find interesting then that there's currently uh, the decision that this AMOS, this collaboration on agricultural markets information system, is going to be expanded to fertilizers and to certain oil seeds. So that uh, there's an expansion of what is considered basic for food security. Great. Let, let's bring in let's bring in Emily because Emily, I know that you've been recently also traveling to a number of countries in Latin America and and in East Asia. What are the stories you hear when these countries think about food security and their mitigation strategies to deal with the issues that Marion laid out? Well, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind to me, and thank you, Rem, and it's a, a pleasure to be here with you today, is that. Food security, as this concept sort of suggests, is about also a securitization of food. And I feel that that was one of the real takeaways from these visits that I've had the opportunity to do across a number of these regions, which are affected by food security. And so the geopolitics of agriculture really seem ready to intensify. And that's driven by increased population needs, the the climatic shocks that were mentioned, and, and also a lot more trade fragmentation, which I think was mentioned. So what we're seeing in those regions in particular is that it's very evident to them that we're going to have two billion more mouths to feed and that by mid-century, basically by 2050, those are the projections. And as the world's population is progressively going to climb towards nine billion, we're going to have to have solutions in terms of production. And so we were just mentioning, uh, so India, for instance, now surpasses China in terms of population at 1.4 billion. And Africa's combined population is also set to double by 2050. So we're just mentioning the crops. Maybe I know it's great that Amos is being expanded to a number of other inputs and oils, for instance. But I would say that maize and wheat remain very key because together they sustain billions of people worldwide. And they fill around a fifth of humanity's nutritional protein and carbohydrate needs. And so every added billion in population is estimated to require an extra 300 million tons in those grains. So that's going to require evidently a range of strategies. But what we can say is that the trade in these grains today is already worth around $50 billion, evidently with the, the question of, of currency that Marion outlined very clearly. And so as the population increases worldwide, the demand will also accelerate for these crops. And I think that's where we're going to start seeing also the question of access to diversified sources as a stronger po foreign policy goal. So what we also need to take into account now, and this is part of these conversations, is that there's much more attention being paid to food-related instability. And so that as water disputes also in many parts of the world are a growing concern, especially in the global south. And it's, again, becoming a strategic consideration of foreign policy for these countries. So speaking to, to ministers and diplomats from uh, developing and least developed countries, what they express are concerns re regarding security of not being able to get hold of sufficient grain for basically their populations. And between the conflict in Ukraine, the economic impacts of COVID-19 and a rise in climate events, and, and I believe we'll, we'll touch upon that in, 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 more, in more detail, 2022 has been an unprecedented year of global hunger. And so this global instability that I'm mentioning rose in tandem with hunger. And we had last year around 12,500 protests worldwide related to price increases in food and fuel. And so 
These global shocks uh, that we're talking about, which is, you know, the, the three C's, COVID, climate and conflict of the past years have basically led governments now to rethink their resilience when it comes to food. And where some consider a movement towards self-sufficiency, which we can discuss is, is, is very different from resiliency. Others, I would say that simply there are countries that have less favorable natural endowments to produce food. And so they're seeking to, once again, diversify their trading partners to become more resilient to these international shocks, climatic shocks, trade shocks, geopolitical shocks. And so there we see basically two strategies emerging for food import dependent countries They're working on a dual strategy right now, which is basically they need to boost productivity at home. I think this was mentioned by Marion as well. Through innovation, they need to improve the self-sufficiency rate at home. But they also need to do that while building stronger and more diverse trading relationships with key grower countries. And so I was recently in Japan, as you mentioned. Um, Japan is reviewing how it's, it views food security because It's not only a question of affordability of food, it's also actually the access to food. And so the Japanese government has now put in an objective to be reached, which is 45% self-sufficiency. Right now it's around 37% to be reached by 2030, so in upcoming years. And also they're looking really to spread geopolitical import risks, so by diversifying the trading partners. For food exporting countries, There are very different considerations. One which we saw with the Russian aggression in Ukraine, which was the need to access key inputs. And that became a slightly more strategic for a number of countries and innovations basically to be able to ensure the productivity levels. And this at a moment of higher sensitivity to climate shocks once again. We were in La Nina. We're going to be in El Nino. It's going to get slightly more intense as well. But on that, we saw, for instance, the lowered rainfalls, which were coming from La Nina in Argentina, resulted in 40% drop in maize production in recent harvests. And so that meant that the accumulated agricultural exports of Argentina reached an eight-year low. When you have a productivity drop of that kind, it costs a country. And in this case, it was it's estimated at around 15 plus billion dollars of lack of finance coming into Argentina as the consequence of this drop in productivity. And so that's why what we're seeing in this debate is also central banks around the world are now looking at agricultural production, weather patterns in a way that has never happened to date because of the financial implications, because of the security implications of what we're talking about when we're talking about food security. And so I've just created this sort of dichotomy between food import dependent and food export uh, countries. But let me say that in most cases, countries are both importers and exporters. And so it's a dual strategy that is made, I would say, on a case-to-case basis by each country. And I think every every government is now looking at this with stronger lenses. And we're seeing even the development of new ministries of food security in the South. So again, I think we're at a, at a very pivotal moment on these issues. Thanks, Emily. And it's interesting what you described that securitization has become a dominant frame and it leads to different strategies. On the one hand, you have those that say we need more self-sufficiency, which to me also sounds like the risk of export restrictions. You know, keep what you have and produce more of it. And at the same time, this balance with resilience through diversification. Marion, to what extent do you see a difference in the debate between how developed economies 
view food security as opposed to the emerging economies? Is there is there a tension there or is there actually a constructive debate taking place also perhaps because there is this agreement that we're all in this together? Do you see this securitization that Emily sketched as a problem or is it actually the basis for having a new type of conversation about access to food? I think from a trade point of view, we see that there is a general change in debate also in the developed world about having access to things. For instance, in um, in Europe, I'm based in, in, in Europe, the situation that during COVID-19, suddenly there was no access to masks or to disinfectants, that has definitely um, left a mark. So we see a, in the trade uh, debate a general interest in the theme access to, and therefore the uh, interest in what we are here um, dealing with at the OECD under the term resilience, resilient supply chains. And we have just um, at the OECD, this, this, this change is so important that we found it necessary to, for the first time in history, to develop a trade strategy for the organization. And where we, 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 we confirm that we consider that open markets and a rules-based international trading system are important and something we stand for, but that where the um, aspect of a need for more resilience in supply chains is definitely accepted. And we're looking into how this can be best assured. So in general, in all parts of the world, more interest in this security of access team in general. Even in industrialized countries, we have seen price increases for food that make populations worried about food security. So if anything, I would say that concerns have converged a bit more between the developing and the industrialized world. Now, what does this mean for the reaction? So we first, we, we do see this increased call for transparency, availability of information through, for instance, these international information systems. And I do think they are key to avoid panic movements. These panic movements in markets by policymakers, by private sector, they can easily lead to things moving further in wrong directions. So I think that's an important first step. Then, of course, we are seeing calls for more production at home. Emily mentioned the Japanese um, national production targets. But you see also immediately in the other example in Argentina, you mentioned the risk of this because the farmers are the ones who have most in their job have always been aware of the risk of losing an entire harvest because of weather uh, conditions. And the shocks we are exposed to when it comes to weather are more frequent and tend to be more extreme. So I think we know in general that being self-sufficient most risky strategy you can pursue. And uh, whilst we acknowledge definitely this need, wanting to be more resilient, that the need for openness will remain and is probably in the current climatic context even more important. What we are seeing is in the overarching resilience debate, yes, interest in being more diverse in terms of whom do we buy from. And whom do we export to? And not putting all your eggs in one basket is also rather a, um, a, a, a traditional wisdom. So that's a good thing to think of. We are also seeing this in terms of what do we plant? I mentioned already the G20 presidency under the Indian presidency. The strong characteristics of a, a crop like millet have been very much emphasized. And this being a crop that can uh, grow easy, more easily than others in dry conditions, in poor soils, and has a high nutrition value. Also emphasizing the importance of looking into new aspects of new crops. For instance, during this, by having created under so-called seeds scheme that we run, that's a standardization certification scheme for seeds, we have 
last week, I think, created a new scheme for sorghum and pearl millet. And we're moving in this direction of creating a seed scheme for seeds of crops that can grow in poor soil conditions uh, as a contribution to climate adaptation. So not putting all your eggs in the same basket in terms of partners, but also not in terms of what you grow. And I'm curious, to what extent has this debate become more constructive, as you say, as a result of some of the recent food shocks that we've seen in the system? So to what extent, for instance, to make it very practical, have, say, lessons drawn from the Ukraine grain crisis now percolated into the broader debate about how to manage food security? Or are these two policies actually quite disconnected? Well, I think the three C's Emily mentioned contain COVID climate, that these are maybe global challenges that maybe would have had the potential to bring the global community closer together on these kind of aspects. But the third C is the one of conflict. And that one doesn't necessarily help to facilitate international discussions. And to you, Emily, in Europe, there is a heated debate about uh, you know, trade agreements like uh, EU-Mercosur or even EU-Australia and what the implications would be in terms of trade in agricultural goods. There is also a heated debate about, for instance, um, market access agreements with Indonesia. And then automatically in the domestic political context, this issue of sustainability and sustainable production techniques comes up. How do we manage this tension between, on the one hand, the willingness to move towards, say, sustainable agricultural production, and on the other hand, not just simple trade-based market access, but also food security? Because if we agree that there is a, a need for greater food security, how do you make that trade-off to ensure that, it also, that food production also happens in a sustainable way? I think we need to, to wind back to the, the, the climate element of this and uh, as part of that sustainability angle because climate mitigation and, and now adaptation in agriculture is going to be key and we're going to have to really focus on that. But I, I really think that there's no need to look at it as a trade-off. Rather, it's about a balance between climate and trade facilitation. So the global trade regime actually can be leveraged to promote climate-smart agriculture and regenerative practices if it's used well. I think I'm going to leave aside uh, some of the protectionist movements. I think they predated some of these discussions, particularly in Europe. But let, let's just say one thing. The key commodity, agricultural commodities that, that we're mentioning now already come in duty-free into Europe. So a trade agreement really doesn't affect that. But let, let, let's go into basically what we can look at here. So Agricultural innovation, basically, is what can allow farmers and, and food systems to adapt to a changing climate and increase resilience, right? And that, that resilience, we're talking about soil health, also by adopting regenerative practices. So there's a lot of change also in agricultural systems which are going to take place also to adapt to climate change. And that needs to happen while maintaining productivity levels. So this doesn't really need to be an either-or scenario. We can produce food in a manner that is both sustainable and productive and under less predictable growing conditions. But we need to know that in the case of these climate shocks, as was mentioned, harvest can be lost. So there is a, a need, once again, to ensure that there's enough production without expanding land. 
that's the trade-off, I think, that we, we need to be looking at here. So policies that can facilitate, for instance, access to technologies, finance, and that support these regenerative agricultural practices can basically help us not only sequester carbon, reduce the carbon emissions, but also restore land and make sure that we have enough. Uh, we're increasing the self-sufficiency percentages that we were talking about. So that's particularly important for many countries with rising temperatures and freshwater scarcity, which is neither a developed nor a developing world issue. The question of, of access to water is going to become a world one. And that also is challenging for agricultural productivity because you're going to need to have, and we mentioned some of the species there, millets and, and others, which are adapted to drought, for instance, that are drought resistant or that can adapt to specific climatic natural endeavors, right? So basically what we need to do here, I think, is bring the private and the public sectors together right? To look at how do you restore degraded lands, because there are a lot of degraded lands which are not in productive use today, and restoring ecosystems. Building also, I would say, farmer and food system resiliency, right? Which is also what has been already put forward by the UN Food System Summit. So there's a lot that's been happening in terms of that transition. And how do we do that while keeping trade flowing? Because that's going to be key for trade, for food security, right? So again, Countries are just unequal when it comes to climate shocks. And I'm just thinking of the devastating floods in Pakistan last year that affected 33 million people and displaced at least 8 million. And it inflicted such damage to the agricultural sector. I mean, totally billions of dollars, right? And that left the smallholder farmers in Pakistan in a particularly vulnerable spot because the summer crops had been ruined. They often did not have access to basic equipment. I mean, we're talking about water pumps to basically drain out the water. So the land was also being kept underwater for, for months. And Pakistan's Ministry of National Food Security basically knows that there's an urgent need to provide farmers with crop insurance, for instance. So there's a, a whole lot of financial services that we need to look at also in this adaptation. Better access to financial services, for instance, loans, without which basically sowing the new crop is going to be compromised. And so this is where I, I, I have to insist, and I think this has been sort of a, a coming in this conversation, but resilience is not self-sufficiency. That is so important for us to understand because after those floods, Pakistan had to import millions of tons of wheat. I think you've made you've made that point, and and I I don't think any of us kind of disputes disputes that. And I also think that it's it's important to note the role that innovation can play. I'm just thinking about what specifically in trade policy terms, and to you, Marion, how to manage the obvious tension that is there in the trade policy space between, on the one hand, allowing a free flowing of agricultural goods. And on the other hand, these sustainability concerns that sometimes actually lead to policies that restrict trade. So could you share a little bit about how the OECD is, is going about this? Because of course, the OECD is a club of countries where these sustainability interests are, are felt very strongly. Yes, I think, and it comes to helping with the consensus finding around policies and in other conditions you described, there, there are two moments. One is the emergency situation when a crisis happens. And so it could, for instance, be recently we had a COVID crisis and then a, a conflict crisis. And then there is the, is the aspect of preparing governments, policymakers 
for this future. Now, in the crisis situations, forums like the G7 and the G20 play an important role because they meet relatively frequently and they very much have a role in helping in these kind of situations. We found very interesting when it comes to the agricultural market situation that the AMOS system, so using AMOS as an early warning system, worked very well during COVID-19 and did not work well in the early months of the Ukrainian crisis. And, and that's something we raised, uh, I raised personally very early on and said, how come we as policymakers, the press, the scientists have not been looking at the data coming out of AMOS. They were crying panic, panic, food crisis when there was no food crisis yet. So, um, so that's important to use these forums well. And it's important for every single one of us to be very responsible in what we do, what, which data we use and how we communicate about those data. One thing I noticed in this period, Emily and Rem, is that financial experts, central bankers, for instance, are very careful before they use the word inflation. They know that you, that you can create a self-fulfilling process here, a snowball effect. Now, in the agricultural community, I would argue that in the Ukraine crisis, we were not careful enough to use the term price increases in the agricultural sector. So agricultural food price increases were very easily used. That term was used and that created, I think, partly a snowball effect. So this is important. Use the International Forum. Be very responsible in your outreach on this particular market because prices in food are so important for the poorest parts of our populations. Then there is the preparing policymakers. As I mentioned before, we are among our members, uh, with our members working on how do you think about resiliency. We have a, a tool at proposal of our members. We call it the four keys for resilient supply chains that helps policymakers to think about how can I anticipate risks? Uh, what do I do to prepare for these risks? And what are policies I should always have in place? And how could I react in a crisis? And very important there is to understand what is the role of the private sector and where am I needed? Because the private sector has actually also crisis management uh, tools and risk management tools in place. Now, this is for the resilience part, but you, you asked Ram, sustainability, our members care about sustainability. We have a very explicit objective. Actually, we have three objectives together. Make sure the ag agricultural sector feeds the world, does it in an environmentally sustainable way and in a way that allows the actors in the agri-food supply chain to live from that activity. And this is a pressure point we are seeing a lot now in the industrialized world and in the developing world where farmers are telling us, we want to be environmentally friendly. We are the first ones to be, see the climate change, to suffer from climate change, and we work with nature. We want to make the relevant investments. We believe that we are, agree with you that we need to have environmentally friendly policies, but in the current situation of increased exposure to crisis, increased changes in policies and fluctuations in prices, it's very hard for us to take decisions, to make investments, because we can look only very short term time ahead. We need a bit more foresight to look into the future in order to take the right decisions. I'm just thinking, is that also perhaps as a summary where the dilemma now is that we are moving towards a world which is geopolitically more contested, where climate change is going to throw out, you know, freak events that are, whether whether it's a more extreme El Nino or there is uh, droughts or what Emily described, there is a 
a massive flooding, and that that actually creates tensions in our ability to create a trade system which is able to deliver stable and sure food supplies for everyone. Is, isn't that then kind of the, the dilemma that we're all talking about, that the international environment is becoming more uncertain and insecure to be able to manage these challenges and the risks that inevitably are going to emerge? I think I would say that the difficulty is that it's so many challenges at once. I, I described it, three objectives, feed the world, allow farmers to live from it, do it sustainability. That's complex. We shouldn't try to do as if this is easy. It's complex. So it will always be difficult to agree on the best way forward. In a situation like this, maybe crisis helps because it puts us in a situation where we have to act. But not sure whether we will manage at the, at the OECD. We do what we can to help our members also in collaboration with non-members to move forward. And Emily, just just for you, what on your wish list, how do we reduce the trade barriers in agricultural goods to move this forward? Say you could name three things. What's on your list? I wish I had the silver bullet for that. Um, but it's true that when we're looking at trade barriers in the realm of food and agriculture, there are many, right? So they can be tariff, non-tariff, export restrictions, bans, but actually there's a whole, when you when you dig into the detail, um, and, and Marion will know this in, in the World Trade Organization, when you get into subsidy discussions or public food stockpiling, then the level of detail and implications and butterfly effects of any decision made actually is tough. And those that's also why those negotiations have been so difficult to lift off for the last 30 years. What we're seeing is that the World Trade Organization now and, and Dr. Ngozi are pushing quite hard to move the reform of the agriculture agreement in the WTO over the next ministerial in Abu Dhabi earlier next year. But again, these are countries which have been very historically engraved. And so where do you start? Perhaps I, I think, you know, one, you've got the question of, I'll say, the subsidies, the public stockpiling, the food security elements in that, and basically how you ensure least trade distortive practices on world markets, um, which is, you know, the, 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 the holy grail for trade economists, I guess. But also we need to tackle non-tariff barriers, right? So this is one of the most contentious areas today when you're in the World Trade Organization. The most active committee in the WTO in Geneva is the Sanitary and Phytosanitary Committee. Why? Because that's all those small pieces of legislation, regulatory approaches on how to uh, ensure that food is traded safely. And that's absolutely a necessity. Each government is entirely, has its own regulatory regime to assess that. And that also creates, I would say, strong fragmentation. So one of the key objectives here, if you want to fluidify the trade in, in food and agricultural goods, is to try evidently to get more coherence at that level. And I would say, ensure that international standards are respected. For that, there are uh, the standard setting sisters that are underlying to that. And um, in, in the area of food, that would be Codex, for instance. These standard setting agencies need to be reinforced. They need to be reinforced. The governments need to also be much more effective, much more engaged in these standard setting agencies to make sure that we are creating a unique set of rules that can be applied worldwide whilst appreciating the right to regulate of every country. And so I would say that for me seems to be one that is incredibly important in terms of just fair, non-discriminatory, rules-based trading system. So um, that would be my, my big wish. 
Thanks. And Marion, what's uh, what's at the top of your sort of midsummer wish list? Oh, no, definitely promoting the rules-based international trading system, including in the area of agriculture. That's definitely um, a strong, um, on the top of my wish list, on the top of our um, messaging. And I would um, agree uh, with Emily that um, the standard setting uh, plays a role there and that it, it, it is, could be useful for members to look into a very proactive way of dealing with this because we are not in uh, area of agriculture. We're not only talking anymore only about federal uh, sanitary standards, but now increasingly about sustainability standards. And that world we have to uh, make work a little bit better. So stronger collaboration, not less. Thank you very much. Unfortunately. This is all we have time for today. But thank you very much to you, Marian Jensen and Emily Reese, for taking time out of your busy schedules to talk to me about food security and global trade. It's been terrific to get your insights on both the context in which this debate takes place as well as the policy options available. If you're interested in this conversation and some of the other conversations that we've had for the AIG Global Trade Series, please visit our website at www.aig.com gts or get our podcasts through the platform you usually use to get your podcasts. Thank you very much. The AIG Global Trade Series 2023 is an international partnership between AIG, the Aspen Institute, Germany, SEPRI, the Brazilian Center for International Relations, Chatham House, the Klingendahl Institute, the Institute of International Economic Law at Georgetown University Law Center, ISPI, the Italian Institute for International Political Studies, the Jacques Delors Institute, Rieti, the Research Institute of Economy, Trade and Industry, and the St. Gallen Endowment for Prosperity Through Trade. To access articles and opinion pieces from partners in the Global Trade Series and to listen to more episodes on global trade, visit www.aig.com forward slash GTS or follow the AIG Global Trade Series wherever you get your podcasts.